The State versus Derek Chauvin, the biggest criminal case in a generation. We're going through it point by point with Professor David Schultz from the University of Minnesota Law School and Hamlin University as our guide. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. Thank you for being here with us. We've got a very, very important show today. And my goal with this particular episode is to give a no-spin assessment of what's going on with the Derek Chauvin case. And our intention here is to create an ongoing series of episodes where we'll continue to check back in on the latest of this case. Now, not all of these episodes will play back-to-back, and, and we'll number them so you can keep up with our progress. And so before we greet our guest today, we need to thank our sponsor because of their generous support. They keep the lights on. It's Noda. Noda is powered by M&T Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of NOTA, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit trustnota.com forward slash legal to learn more. That's NOTA spelled N-O-T-A. Terms and conditions may apply. All right, let's say hello to our guest, Professor Schultz. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks to the audience for listening. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I thank you for this. I, I know this is a, a complicated and very important case. And, uh, you know, we want to take our time here and kind of go through the important details. I think it's really important here. I've, you know, I've watched a lot of the press coverage over the months since George Floyd died during the arrest in Minneapolis. And I just want to make sure that as Legal Talk Network, and I'm also a lawyer, that we uh, show all the facts of the case in the best possible light in terms of the truth. And we're going to have to let this process play. It's a very important case. A lot of eyes, a lot of people are invested in this case. And so what I want to do, Professor, if you don't mind, I want to start from the very beginning. And so, you know, the media got on top of the story right away. There was a lot of reporting coming from those cell phone cams and people were sharing that. But since that time happened, there's been some catching up with the police department. There's been some release of body cams. And so an updated timeline has taken place. And I'm not sure that everybody's aware of it. So I was wondering if we could just take a, a minute or two here to up Update that timeline, kind of talk about the reasons the police officers were down over by that cup, spelled C-U-P, foods store in the first place. What happened with George Floyd? Why were they, why was there a tussle? And then kind of walk us through the the unfortunate portion of that where uh, George Floyd lost his life. So I guess just a brief recap with updated timeline. Sure. So let's take us back to May 25th, 2020. And there's a cup foods and it's located in Minneapolis. And what happened is that a clerk called the police department and said that they believed that a person had just given them a counterfeit $20 bill. Police officers showed up at that point. Um, By the time the police officers had shown up, George Floyd, who was the person who was alleged to have passed this counterfeit bill, had already been leaving the store. Police approached him. And this is where we start to get a little bit of a disagreement, obviously, in terms of the facts. You know, the prosecution um, is going to argue, um, on the one hand, that Derek Chauvin acted inappropriately in terms of approaching him, in terms of trying to subdue him. The defense is going to argue that George Floyd was resisting arrest. Again, that's going to be a matter for the jury to ultimately decide, because that's going to be critical to the case. But eventually, what wound up happening, and this is the famous video that many of us have seen, is that there were bystanders taking a picture of Derek Chauvin having subdued George Floyd, handcuffs on him. George Floyd either didn't want to go into the police car or, again, was refusing to go in because of being claustrophobic. Again, that's a matter that's going to be debated between prosecution and defense. But the famous video shows now George Floyd laying on the ground in the street. 
with Derek Chauvin, the officer, with his knee on his neck. There are three other police officers kind of patrolling the perimeter. And what happens is over the course of now what's a famous nine minutes and 29 seconds, George Floyd repeatedly says, and I think it's over 20 times, says, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Eventually, George Floyd loses consciousness. By the time then EMTs and ambulance arrives, he has lost the pulse, has apparently been effectively has died there. And as a result of that video being shot by civilians, it went to use the phrase viral very quickly across Minnesota and across the world. And as a result of that video, and then we know there's other videos that are now being circulated to police cams, other third party cams and so forth. The four officers were indicted for a variety of crimes, which we'll talk about in a minute here. But what becomes significant is how this incident with George Floyd literally became a, a viral incident um, that many people are saying is all about what? It's all about either police being on trial or racism being on trial. But nonetheless, this takes us back to May of last year. What has happened since then is that going back to earlier this month, on March 8th, the jury selection occurred. That took approximately two and a half weeks. And then on March 29th, just a few days ago, the actual opening arguments and trial in the case started. Now, if we can go forward just a little bit, um, what we're predicting here, although it's not guaranteed, is that the trial might last itself for approximately three or so weeks, of which then it'll be turned over to jury deliberations, which, again, most of us are estimating could be one to two weeks. And so that sometime, but let's say the first or second week of May, we arguably could have a verdict in the case. Again, all of this is subject to how long it takes for presentation of arguments. Are there any other unanticipated delays? How long it's going to take the jury to deliberate? But most of us are thinking first or second week of May is a likely verdict. Okay. Now we're at the very beginning of this trial. And so uh, evidence is just the very beginning process of being presented. They're, they're talking to witnesses. Uh, but before we get into some of that, you know, just who's the judge in this case? And then tell us about the lawyers. Sure. Now, Peter Cahill is the judge in the case. He's considered to be a very good, no-nonsense judge. He worked um, as a prosecutor for several years. He's also worked in terms of criminal defense, exceedingly well-respected. He's a judge in Hennepin County. Hennepin County is the, is the county where Minneapolis is located. In Minnesota, we basically have a unified statewide court system of which the district courts are part of, of again, of a district court, court of appeals, um, state Supreme Court. And Hennepin County itself constitutes a judicial district because it's so large in terms of its population. So that's Peter Cahill, the judge, been on the bench for quite a few years. We have, for the defense, we have um, Eric Nelson. Eric Nelson is one of a small team of lawyers who regularly represent police officers in the state of Minnesota. His specialty is primarily in terms of again, representing police officers, mother criminal defense, DUI, considered to be an exceedingly good lawyer, very, very subtle. And we're going to see that in the trial here, that he's very deliberate, very contemplative, but very effective in what he does. Very good reputation. For the state of Minnesota and the prosecution, this is a case that's being brought by the attorney general's office. Now, what's unusual in Minnesota is that the attorney general 
does not normally do criminal prosecution. It usually does consumer cases. It does um, consumer fraud issues. It basically represents the state of Minnesota. It doesn't ordinarily do these types of cases. However, because the Hennepin County attorney was conflicted out of this case because of a conflict of interest issue. And because of political pressures, the case was absorbed by the attorney general's office. Keith Ellison is the attorney general, first term attorney general, former member of Congress representing the Minneapolis area. But the attorney general's office has several rotating attorneys who are assisting. For example, we're going to see a variety of different names and different personalities, including, among other things, attorneys who have been brought in as special acting attorney generals to do the representation and do the argumentation. And there's been some volunteers also who have been assisting. So it's a very large legal team on that side. And that's important to note because, as we're going to find out, prosecuting police officers is not easy. It's it's very, very difficult to do. And with the attorney general's office not having this experience either in criminal matters or more specifically in terms of representation of the state in terms of going after police officers, they've needed some assistance to help them out here. So those are the legal teams that we're looking at. Yeah, you know, and and I've been able to observe some of the uh, trial during uh, different portions of the day. And I'll have to say, I I think everybody that I've seen so far has been very poised. looks like a very skilled set of teams on both sides of the equation here. So one quick follow-up just in terms of the court structure here. Now, I do understand that there's been a limitation placed on family members that are allowed to attend from either side. So I guess there's just one family member from the Floyd family and there's one family member from the Chauvin family. And do we know who those people are? Yeah, we do. Now, in terms of for the Floyd family, we have a brother, we have some cousins, and again, you're right, they're rotating. And so those are the people who are going to be rotating in. There may be other individuals, but those are the primary ones. In terms of Chauvin, he's just recently divorced, so his wife is not attending. It's not clear who he has really sort of showing up as a family member at this point. Now, the other thing is important to know about this case, which I think is really fascinating, is that This is the first criminal case in Minnesota history that's being broadcast. Many states have know that. Yeah, it is. Many other states have have a pattern of, of, of broadcasting court of appeals level cases. We do have court of appeals um, being broadcast on occasion, but this is the very first time ever. And it's being done because of a couple of reasons. One, it's a pandemic. And we obviously have to worry about the seating for a pandemic in terms of the social distancing. And so what the court said is we're going to have to broadcast this because otherwise we're just running too much of a risk having a full packed courtroom. And then because, of course, the fact that there is a First Amendment right for the press and for the people to be able to observe trials so that we can make sure that what? Nothing inappropriate is going on here. How to sort of balance sort of the needs of a pandemic as well as the rights of the public and the press to be able to cover and observe. The decision was made to do a broadcast. And so We're experimenting in this state for something very unusual for us in terms of how's this going to play out in terms of of the reaction by the public. And it makes it now, again, a fascinating trial because what we have here as a parallel, and some people have said to me, well, what does this trial remind you of? And I said, well, it possibly reminds me in one level of the O.J. Simpson trial from back in the 1990s (laughs) where it suddenly broadcast and it became... 
not just a legal curiosity, but almost a pop culture curiosity because of obviously with OJ Simpson back in the 90s, just in terms of how famous of a person it is. But I would argue this is OJ Simpson on steroids. And the reason why I say that, remember when the OJ Simpson trial occurred, it was like around 95, 96, or just what, at the dawn of what, the social media era. In fact, we may be still be prior Facebook, Instagram, and everything. And now we've got all the social media in the capacity to be able to to broadcast information. So take OJ Simpson, put it on social media, and boom, this is what we have here. But it's also a little bit like what? Rodney King. And Rodney King, you might recall back in the early 90s, there was an accusation against the Los Angeles Police Department that several police officers had inappropriately beaten him. And he was, his beating was covered on tape that somebody had actually recorded it. So we've got a combination of the Rodney King dimension of sort of race in video with the O.J. Simpson dimension of pop culture, legal notoriety, but now add to it social media. Yeah, I agree. I think it's going to be a case of just incredible uh, social impact. And, you know, it's been, uh, you know, you, you combine that with the pandemic, people have been uh, cooped up. Uh, mm-hmm. We've had some, uh, you know, people concerns with uh, economy. It does feel in a lot of ways like it's a, just a powder keg getting ready to blow, you know, and I think it was smart for the judge to, you know, place some limitations on who's coming in that courtroom just for that reason. But you're right. He has to absolutely show what's going on in there. So let's get into um, uh, Derek Chauvin defense team here just a little bit. And so, you know, he was arrested during the course of something that happened while he was carrying out his duties. You know, the the death of George Floyd occurred while he was on duty and it was during the course of an arrest, you know. And so obviously, you know, this is going to be a really expensive trial. Uh, It's going to have a lot of visibility. He's going to need a really good uh, legal defense. So do we know who's paying for that? Is that the state paying for that? Is the insurance paying for that? I guess what's the source of funding for his defense team? Well, the source of the funding is the police union. And the police union in Minneapolis is very powerful, very well organized, and they've created a legal defense fund that has paid for several trials over the last few years for Minneapolis police officers accused of wrongdoing. And that fund has been using, again, a small team of rotating attorneys who all are really specialized in terms of representing police officers. Again, Eric Nelson being one of them. And that's how it's being covered at this point. And so Derek Chauvin's not out a cent in terms of the representation here. The fund is very, is, is, let's say, is flush. It's got a lot of resources to pay for what has to be, when you think about it at this point, an exceedingly expensive defense because they've been preparing for it for what, let's say 10 months. This is going to be a four week or so trial, potentially, depending on what happens. If there's a, a guilty verdict, um, there's going to be appeals. I can only calculate and estimate probably well in excess of $100,000, if not more, in terms of the the cost of representation here. Yeah, it does seem to be really set up in terms of technology. And I've been impressed with both sides, just navigating the video and syncing up the timing of the video and angles of each one of these different cell phone cams and security cams. And and all of that has just been amazing how they've been able to line that up. 
obviously both sides doing their homework. Uh, they've been practicing this for quite some time, and that is going to cost some money. So, well, let's get into the charges. And I, I want to walk carefully through here, Professor. You know, most of our listeners, I would say, probably have some type of legal background, but, you know, increasingly, I hope that we're getting more people interested in the law. And so not everyone's going to have the same legal background. So I want to go through the three charges that uh, Derek Chauvin's been charged with. And then after that, let's go through the elements that the state is going to have to show in order to get a conviction. So let's start with uh, listing them out, and then we'll get into, I guess, the uh, the burden of proof for the state. Sure. Okay. So initially, there was three charges brought against Derek Chauvin, and they were murder in the third degree, manslaughter in the second degree, and murder in the second degree. And I say initially because those three charges- We hope you're enjoying our episode about the Derek Chauvin trial with Professor David Schultz. We'll pick up where we left off in the next episode when I ask him about the criminal charges against Derek Chauvin and what the prosecution is going to need to prove in order to get a conviction. After that, we'll jump into the jury selection process, security concerns, and a strange twist on evidence that might make the prosecution's job much more difficult. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. Have a great day, everybody. 